Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Bonnie Snyder. Bonnie is an educator with over 20 years of experience in a variety of roles, including teacher, counselor, administrator, and professor in both public and private schools. She's a graduate of Harvard University with a master's degree in counseling from Virginia Tech and a doctorate in higher education from Penn State. And she's also the high school outreach fellow at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Her latest book and the topic of today's conversation is Undoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. This conversation is very much a follow-up to my podcasts with Christopher Rufo and Camille Foster, and this is probably the last guest that I'll address this topic with in the near future for fear of boring you all to death. Anyway, we talk about political indoctrination in K-12 classrooms, talk about the power struggle between parents and teachers, we talk about critical race theory and the state laws attempting to ban it the political leanings of America's teaching population. We talk about free speech and forced speech. We talk about the consequences of self-censorship and much more. So without further ado, Bonnie Snyder. All right, Bonnie Snyder, thanks so much for coming on my show. Coleman, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we get into your book, Undoctrinated, can you give the audience a sense of who you are? I understand that you um, were both from New Jersey. And oh, where, where are you from in New Jersey? I'm from Montclair. Ah, Tom's River. Nice. Yeah. It was and, nice. Um, and you had a background as an English teacher after you left Harvard. Yeah, I was an English teacher. And that's kind of relevant to how the book came about because I was exposed in my English studies to what was then called critical theory uh, is now called, you know, and then it was called critical feminist theory and now it's called critical race theory. So um, I taught high school and I found that teaching high school was extremely hard. And so I decided to become a guidance counselor uh, and which is a nice role within the school where you don't have to deal with, you know, 120 students a day. You deal with them more often one-on-one, you know, other incarnations I've had include uh, well, mom, And I have been a college professor. I taught developmental psych for a number of years. And I've also been a teacher educator. And I I do a lot of writing as well. Yeah, and we've moved up and down the East Coast, but I'm an East Coast person. And when did you start working for FIRE? This is my, I think I'm finishing up my fifth year at FIRE. So 2017, end of 2017. And I understand you're the high school outreach coordinator at FIRE. I'm the, now I'm the director of high school outreach. Yep. And we are a mighty department of three at the moment. Nice. So for people who may not know, FIRE is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Is that, is that what it is? Individual Rights in Education. In education. Yep. We're 22 years old and we were founded um, to defend constitutional rights on campus. We're nonpartisan and uh, typically that means free speech, but sometimes it means freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, uh, sometimes some due process work as well. Most of our employees are lawyers. I am not a lawyer. I am um, an educator, Hmm. primarily. Yeah, and FIRE is one of the few institutions that really manages to stay nonpartisan and is a, a really great example of how to advocate for a politically neutral value like free speech and maintain credibility over time in ways that organizations like the ACLU have struggled to do, in, in, in my view. But um, I have enormous admiration for FIRE, and I've been a fan of David French, especially for a long time, of, of his writing. Right. So that's a, that's a great thing to be involved with. 
Yeah, I love it. And thank you for saying that. I mean, we're all individuals at FIRE who have our own opinions, but uh, we actively hire across the political spectrum. So it's sort of like, you know, the biases that we bring as individuals cancel each other out, hopefully, because we cross interrogate one another. And hopefully that keeps us honest. Yeah, it definitely looks that way from the outside. So let's get into your book, Undoctrinated. This is to give you some context for listeners to my podcast, I had Christopher Rufo on my show maybe two months ago, and then I had Camille Foster a few weeks ago, who take opposite lines on this question of, of state laws against critical race theory, which we'll get into later. Sure. But that's, the, that's sort of the conversation you're intervening in from the listener's point of view, uh, um, on this podcast at least. And so let's just, I guess, start with your impetus to write the book. What is the, the problem as you see it and what prompted you to write this book now? I could answer that question a lot of different ways. Uh, I think what prompted me is different from what motivates me now. And you would get a different answer of what I think the problem is, depending on when you ask me. I def- a big impetus for me was that I had to pull my daughter out of a school where I found some really substandard biased teaching going on. And, uh, but the thing that really sealed my decision to leave was that I caught them lying to me. And I think that deceit is such a big part in this lack of transparency of what's going on here. Um, I'm seeing rising right now. What I'm seeing is rising contempt for parents, which seems to justify deceiving them about what's going on in the schools. And I, you know, I see this as going way beyond CRT. This has been a problem long before anyone coined the term. Well, I don't know exactly when the term was coined in law schools, but this problem precedes it and will extend beyond it. This problem of unbalanced teaching, you know, uh, indoctrination or what, whatever you want, what label you want to give it. Uh, right now, I'm also seeing these two competing moralities that are in the schools. You know, you've got sort of traditional morality that for most of us draws from Judeo-Christian backgrounds that underlies the Enlightenment philosophy that was written into all of our founding documents and our system of laws. And you have this new morality that is going by different names. Some people are calling it, I think Wesley Yang called it the successor ideology. You know, you might hear it called wokeness, whatever it is, it definitely is taking aim at some very foundational principles, including things as basic as objective reality. So it's very philosophical. It's, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around, sometimes deliberately so. It, it uses a lot of difficult, the, the terminology that it uses is sometimes de- deceptive or cloaking or at best opaque. So uh, there's a lot going on, Colton. I've experienced a good amount of this myself, and I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but... I went to an elite private school and graduated around 2014. And I think in 2012 or maybe 2013, actually 2013, I think I went to something called the people of color conference, which is a gathering of elite private school students from all over the country for a three day conference, students chosen by their teachers to go or who, who elect to go and meet other kids from other elite private schools all over the country for a two or three day workshop in which we learned the tenets of intersectionality, critical race theory sure. in an environment that was very church-like. Um, it, it was very distinct from a classroom environment in that we were being asked to accept dogmas yep. that I had never heard of before. In, in my very, as you know, probably very liberal town in, in Montclair, very racially and, and in other ways diverse place. And it was the new morality, as you put it. And it was also an environment where many kids were coming out of the closet for the first time and coming from places where uh, they didn't feel they could be themselves. Um, so in some ways it was very moving experience. And in other ways, it was a horribly close-minded and dogmatic indoctrination session. And 
it was a deeply strange experience to convey to people who hadn't been there or to even understand myself. But I think in the, in the past, let's see, in the, in the, in the eight years since then, you correctly write in the book that this kind of, this mode of operation has spread. And I, I, I really like the way that you describe the spread in your book, which is that elite high schools like the one I went to are emulating the colleges that, that they're sending us to, right? Like parents send their kids to elite high schools, partly, largely because of the promise that this is a factory to get kids into and then name the elite school. And part of that job is to emulate the culture of those elite schools. So it filters to the high schools from the colleges and then to the elite public schools in, in wealthy areas where people are consuming the same information as people, as the private schools. And we've seen that. So, so the experience I, I would have described as very rare and strange to have in 2013 is more and more recognizable to thousands, hundreds of thousands. I don't, I don't, I don't know how many of, of you know, people all around the country. It's very interesting to, to hear you describe how they took you away from where you were to a separate place where you were introduced or welcomed to this new ideology, which I think is such, um, you know, that is a mechanism that enables young people to be more open to being filled with different ideas. Uh, and in certain school systems, you know, one of the things I'm very concerned about is these sort of unlicensed people coming in through the side door and they're importing these ideas and parents aren't always aware of, of what's going on. So, um, yeah, I mean, the elite schools are teaching kids basically the right attitudes to signal. And it sort of makes you wonder what really goes on at the college that makes kids, the graduates so special. I went to, you know, a, a very selective school and I can tell you that before all of this ideology had really hit, there was nothing going on there that I thought was particularly special. And I came out sort of looking around like, wow, I'm not sure I learned anything I didn't already know in high school for my four years at Harvard. So, but I, I do talk, well, I think it might've gotten cut from the book actually, but I, I have a copy here. I was given this book six times. I was assigned it six different times. The only book I was ever assigned more than once when I was an undergraduate. And that was my first sign that something was up. And um, you, you talk about in the book, the enormous disparity between left-wing and right-wing professors and, and in fact, teachers, which I, I, I was aware that of the huge disparity at the undergrad level between Democrats and Republicans in professors, but I wasn't aware that. So just one stat here is there, there are 87 Democrat professors, sorry, there are 87 Democrat teachers for every 13 Republican teachers among high school teachers in the country. Yeah. So that that's an enormous disparity to be true of just the country at large. Right? It's, it's more understandable when you have a disparity that's describing, say, elite colleges, but a disparity that huge just in the education system is pretty enormous. And I'm, I'm curious what the source of that is. Is it that Republicans don't want to become teachers? They don't want to go into an environment that it, they perceive as hostile? Or is it just like not as much in a, of an attractive profession or is there bias or what's the story? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can infer a couple of things. I think that the ed schools have become completely ideologically monocultural. Uh, so the numbers of ed professors, you know, in different disciplines in academia, it's going to be more tilted. I think business and engineering are going to have the more most even ratios. The social science are the most imbalanced. And ed schools are among the worst. Uh, another factor that seems to be playing into it is that, believe it or not, you know, when I was a kid growing up, the only jobs in Toms River, New Jersey, that I saw women having were teacher or nurse, which is kind of sad. And, you know, since then, of course, the work world has opened up to women and you can do all sorts of things. But I really didn't have too many role models. So I chose teacher, basically. Uh, but that being said, despite all of the changes, the education field has actually become more female than it was when I was a kid. We don't have as many male teachers. 
uh, as we used to have. And I think that's part of it too. Women are more prone to be left on the left than men are, and they are increasingly in the schools. So that is another reason why kids are getting this really unbalanced education. I wish we would have, uh, and they, they used to in the past, to recruit men, you know, especially for elementary school education. Of course, the fear is always that, you know, men are less liable to be trusted around children. And, and uh, maybe that's a reason why they don't recruit as actively. I don't know. But I think that, you know, we talk a lot about balance and diversity in terms of curriculum and representation, but nobody seems to mind that education is an overwhelmingly female dominated field still. That's interesting. And, and it mirrors the, the trend lines in, in other countries. I mean, there, I know there've been some pretty publicized studies about how countries in Europe with more progressive gender norms and higher levels of gender equality sometimes exhibit more gender segregation in profess in professions where, where when people feel more and more free it's not necessarily true that gen, that that professions become more 50-50 right. counterintuitively um, yeah, I mean people choose according to their inclinations which I think we want to encourage but on the other hand when it leads to tremendously unbalanced delivery of content it's a problem. I want to step back for a moment and address the argument that this is basically a false concern. And this is this is an argument I've heard places as high as, as, as high as the New York times and, and so forth. And it, it basically goes like this. Critical race theory is a higher level academic philosophy that is taught at the graduate level and sometimes at the undergraduate level. And it is simply not taught in K through 12 education. And the people complaining about critical race theory being taught in K through 12 are basically just either deceived by propaganda or they just don't want as much talk about racism and America's, the black spots on America's history. They want to just whitewash history. And this is just a false concern, basically. So how, how would you address that statement? Yeah, I think that the, that argument uh, doesn't hold water when you see that the Zen Education Project has a list of thousands of teachers who have vowed to continue teaching this way despite the bans against it that have been legislated or proposed in legislation. The NEA and the AFT, the two largest teachers unions, uh, have simultaneously said it's not happening, but they've vowed to defend teachers who are doing it. And uh, we've also seen uh, webinars, uh, one in Florida, and we've seen uh, another example of a teacher uh, online explaining how they get around the state pan bans to do it anyway in their states. So uh, these are two completely contradictory notions that can't reconcile. You wouldn't be signing a vow to keep doing something that's been banned if you weren't doing it. Right. And when we talk about it, you give the first chapter of your book has story after story yeah. of different versions of teachers inculcating a set of ideas, you know, the most common being that people of color are by definition victims of white supremacy. Uh, you know, any, any black kid or Hispanic kid in class has been harmed by white racism, has reason to fear the racism of white people and his or her white classmates. White people are by definition privileged from their whiteness, regardless of an individual person's story or, or life path or, or circumstances. And, you know, the, the macro inequalities between groups in, in society are the result of discrimination only. And, you know, the, and also there is a, a sexual identity component to a lot of what's being taught, which is it goes beyond saying it's okay to be gay. It's okay to be who you are. And 
really is a basically an op- oppression Olympic style ranking of your level of privilege by whether you are straight, gay, queer, pan, and all of the the litany of other identities that that one can one can be. So, do do you have any examples that that you can sort of call to mind to give someone a picture of? what is the kind of thing that people are objecting to when they're objecting to critical race theory or indoctrination? Yes. And, um, I do have a bunch of examples that I've collected over a number of years and I try very hard to collect examples from the right that happens as well. And in the past we've had, you know, probably Christian teachers who would be promoting Christian doctrine in class. And to be clear, I'm not opposed to discussing these ideas. Uh, what I'm opposed to is expecting students to affirm them, which is what you described when you were taken away to the person of color, um, you know, event. Uh, I think that different ideas can be discussed. But in terms of examples, um, I actually have so many examples that I've had to group them. I mean, there are lawsuits. There are examples of teachers lying. Um, here, here are just, and then I have lurid examples, which are things that I just can't believe are even going on in the classroom, like a six-year-old being asked if they're bisexual, uh, first graders taught about masturbation. I joked that I was taught, you know, how to hold a pencil properly in first grade, but these kids are being taught something completely different. There's a lot of objections to a couple of books I hear about. I won't name the books, but depictions of sex between an adult and a minor, which is a crime. Um, you know, that's when I was a guidance counselor. That was something we were on the alert for, you know, warning like these 18 year old boys, if they're dating a freshman to keep them out of trouble. And I would not recommend, uh, books encouraging sex between adults and minors. Probably the, you know, the Antifa teacher is one of the, it's interesting how some of them are starting to say the quiet part out loud, you know, when their guard is let down, or some of them are even going on you know, YouTube or TikTok to brag about what they're doing in their classrooms. The Antifa teacher got a lot of attention. He was fired. He said he had 180 days to turn his students into radicals, offering extra credit to go to rallies that he approved of. And, you you know, that there was also a teacher who lost her job this year on the first day of school in Utah. She told the students that you need to get vaccinated. Of course, she's not a doctor. She said, if your parents don't want you to get vaccinated. You don't have to listen to your parents because your parents are stupider than you are anyway. This contempt for parents. Uh, she said, if you don't agree with me, you should keep your mouth shut because I'm just going to make fun of you, which the students are picking up anyway. You know, they sort of understand I have to agree with the teacher to be acceptable to the teacher, which I discuss in the section on like the, the psychology of this, this, you know, conditional acceptance. You're only acceptable to me if you think what I want you to think which is not the grounds for any sort of healthy relationship. Uh, And then she even said, go ahead and tattle to the administration. They won't do anything anyway. And I think that might've cost her her job. I think saying that out loud and dare, you know, she basically dared them to fire her and they did. Um, You know, we've had uh, in Boston, there was a group of trainers brought in who were charged with unlicensed therapy. There's a lot of therapeutic things going on in the classroom which I wouldn't even attempt as a trained guidance counselor, as a certified guidance counselor, because, you know, there's this concept of competence. And when you're competent at something, sometimes you're so good at it, you don't know how you do it. But sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard of unconscious competence or conscious competence. Like if I were going to try to do something completely new, I would know that I'm not good at it. And I, that would be conscious incompetence. But I think we have some unconscious, unconscious incompetence who are trying to conduct therapy. They don't know what they're doing. They're not trained to do it. They're not licensed to do it. They have no authority to be doing it. And there's a lot of stuff going on that uh, supervisors should be saying absolutely no to. So you, you open the book with this, this one story about uh, Gabriel Clark She's the, she was the black mother of a mixed race child where the father was out of the picture and the child was very light skinned, but it seems they were living in a black neighborhood and, and, or, or at least at the very least at a majority black school where the kid was the only white looking kid or light skinned looking kid in the class. And the teacher who seems to be one of these rogue teachers, and this is a high school student 
is is just basically berating this kid over his uh over his privilege and his being white and basically forcing him to affirm statements about you know how his whiteness has privileged him as part of the curriculum where the 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 implied threat or actually in in this case the explicit threat from her was that he will fail if he does not complete the the quote unquote identity confession assignment and so this is the kind of thing that concerns fire when citizens of 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 this country are asked to affirmatively say they believe x y or z with some kind of implicit threat that matters like like failing a class forced speech essentially of of a political nature yeah i mean there's two things going on there there's um coercive thought reform thought reform is what we call it and um compelled speech or or compelled action which i would call you know giving kids extra credit or threatening to punish them if they don't participate in a rally and this student was actually given a D, or I believe, or a D minus, which counted as a failing grade, which impacted his college applications and all sorts of things. It was a required class. They tried to get him out of the class. They wouldn't allow it. So he was basically placed in a situation. He's compelled by law to go to school, right? His mother is uh, required to send him there. And his, he's not allowed to adhere to, they, they literally told him, the teacher, that you're going to have to unlearn your Judeo-Christian values. This is a secular public school. And, you know, we, we have established laws that, no, you don't have to, you know, give, and much of which came out of, uh, from lawsuits filed by Jehovah's Witnesses, incidentally, who, uh, for whatever reason, objected to certain activities in the school. And uh, because of them, we have now some very solid case law that protects all of us. So this case is ongoing. Uh, she, I believe, has already turned down a settlement offer from the school. She's taking it all the way. Yeah. This is what I would be concerned about as, as someone who plans to have kids and whose kids will, by definition, be of color. When I was at Columbia, I, I took one class by the kind of rogue professor that, that we're talking about. And it's it's less of a problem at an elite college where you can it's a totally elective course and and so forth. You're an adult, yeah. It's not quite a captive audience in the same way, it, although to some extent it is. Um, but she, you know, one, there was one class where she just said point blank, all people of color are victims of white supremacy, have been victimized deeply by white supremacy full stop. And I was, I was so offended that, that a, she was speaking on behalf of all people of color, which is, is a, it would be a ridiculous thing for a person of color to do. And then there was added layer of irony to the fact that she was white doing this. And I was sitting there in the class saying, no, I, I don't, I honestly do not feel that I have been a victim of white supremacy. Can I cite a story or two from my life that, you know, uncomfortable experiences as a result of being black, perhaps. But when I talk to my grandfather and compare that, uh, the America he experienced to the America I experience, there's no, there's no utility or truth value from my point of view in saying I am a victim of white supremacy. It, It would be a lie. It would be a lie calculated only to increase my social cachet within a particular subculture. So that, that's my, that's, you know, I'm, I don't claim to speak for all people of color, of course, but there are lots of people of color with that point of view, including this, this mother of this beleaguered mother. And, and so to, to ask someone to affirmatively say, no, I, I believe this it's, it goes so against the norm of the right to conscience, which is where coercive thought reform lies. And, you know, there is censorship of two types. There's negative censorship where you can't say what you really think. And a lot of students feel that right now, but then there's, you know, the compelled speech, sort of the other side of it is like, not only must you not say what you actually think, but I'm going to require you to say things that you don't actually think or believe, 
which is really attacking your most private of, you know, your personal liberty, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the liberty and the autonomy. And I talk about personal autonomy when I talk about developmental human development and, you know, developing your own sense of autonomy is such a foundational part of who you are and your identity, your individualism. Uh, but I, you know, these people for the most part are collectivists. They don't really look at us at, as individuals, which is fine. There are different ways of conceiving of the world, but they're presuming that their way is the right way. Whereas I think most individualists would, you know, when I describe what we do at FIRE, the simplest way I can put it is that we defend your right to disagree, to dissent. And they don't really allow dissenters. And incidentally, was it not Colombia where the North Korean defector said that it was her time there was about what she experienced in North Korea? Did you hear about that? I did not hear about that. Yeah, you might want to check into that. She, I think she went to Colombia and she was not impressed. Yeah, well, I, I was not impressed either. I, I will say the level, the level of groupthink and... I mean, I have, I have so many different stories I could tell, but about the, the culture of self-censorship at Columbia. So I'll just tell one because I think it's, it's really relevant to the, that last comment you made. Um, there was, there was one instance where there was a bit of a school scandal where this, and this was all over the news. I don't know if you remember, this was, you know, he was on Don Lemon, this kid, Alex McNabb walked through the gates at Barnard College. Barnard is the female wing of Columbia College. And everyone is required to show an ID past something like 10 p.m. And it's a, it's a, on balance, it's a very useful rule because as most young women know, in New York, you will get followed by creepy guys at night at some point. Yeah. And it's very useful to be able to just enter the gates of your college and know that anyone will be bounced that, that, that is finally a safe space. And, um, so he walks through without, without a, an ID and the security guard chases him down and they hold him down and ask him to show his ID. And finally, after a, a huge commotion, he shows his ID and, and the whole thing ends, but he, he says that this was racism. And so there was a huge scandal about this on campus and there were, there were many holes in his story about how he behaved when he walked through the gates. He contradicted himself in various ways. And I, I was you know, one of the only people publicly trying to sort of point this out and defend the policy, uh, the ID policy. Anyway, the, the, the point of me bringing up the story now is there were so many women that came up to me, friends or friends of friends that came up to me and privately said, I really like the policy. It's there's two or three different occasions where I've been stalked by someone and walked through the gates, but they would never, they wouldn't like my Facebook post about it. They wouldn't give any public acknowledgement that they agreed with my side. And that is what it's like to live in, in a, you know, in a totalitarian culture. It is just this this private, I agree with you and I'm terrified. And I, and I know you have this view because you're one of the few people willing to publicly state it, but I won't tell anyone else until I'm sure I'm around someone because, uh, and that's how common sense goes out the wayside because, you know, it could be 70%. It could have been that 70% of people on campus were much closer to my opinion than, than to his and we, we eventually had a scheduled debate that got canceled. But, but if, you know, if the 30% who agree with him feel totally comfortable expressing their viewpoint because they know nothing bad is going to happen to them and the 70% feel, it could be the 90%, you know, the 90% feel this is just, I don't need that smoke. This is, this is too much for me. I'm only going to express it when I know I'm in on a one-on-one with someone who's, who's not going to yell at me or cancel me for it. That's how common sense goes out the wayside. And that's, that's, that's very much what Columbia was like and, and what probably a lot of similar colleges are like. 
Right. And this is how we get collectively stupid, right? Because we're not willing to speak up when we see something that we know is wrong. But, you know, this is why we have children's fables like the emperor's new clothes. When you see something stupid, are you going to stand there and say that it's smart or are you going to point it out? And traditionally, Americans have been the ones who would speak up and say it. And it's very concerning that the speech, you know, the chilling of speech is something fire is very, very concerned of. There's a great book by, um, oh gosh, I can't pronounce the name. It's Czechoslovakian. It's like Szeslaw Milos. Milos, yeah. Yeah, um, the captive mind. And he talks about this concept of Ketman. And, and the, you know, what really can happen if it ha- starts at young enough ages, like when I self-censor, I know that I'm doing it uh, and I'm aware. And sometimes, you know, we all self-censor sometimes. Like if somebody is telling white lies as part of being an adult is not always blurting out everything that you think. But, you know, if, it, if you start to self-censor to appeal and to appeal to authority figures at a young enough age, you won't even know what you think, uh, which really, really concerns me. At least I know what I'm thinking. And then I have a choice whether or not to, to say it. But if it starts with little children, they are really going to be confused, you know, and and part of this ideology even is t- taking on objective truth and objective reality and saying there's no such thing. Uh, and that description you gave about like all this professor saying that all people of color are oppressed. I mean, these are this type of black, white thinking really is lacking in any nuance. Uh, it certainly needs to be challenged. And this is what our president at FIRE talks about in the coddling of the American mind and cognitive behavioral therapy and having to learn how to avoid thinking and speaking in these stark, starkly polarized terms that all. You know, like what you just and and when you just described the student who got pulled aside because he didn't have his ID and he said that it was racist, what you were describing to me, if anything, it sounds like he was pulled aside because he was male. Uh, So sexist would be more appropriate. And I think that that's would be have been a reasonable discussion to have. But, you know, certain arguments are more palatable in our current age. And and again, common sense goes out the window. I don't think he was pulled aside because of I, I think if it were a woman, that person likely might not have been pulled aside is my hunch. Uh, yes, that's, that's about what I said at the yeah. time. and Common sense. What a lot of common sense would have dictated. And yeah, yeah and then, you know, and I, I walked through those gates many times and always had to present my ID and, you know, it's, it's, it was widely understood. But I guess place to go from here is... I guess what, what are, what are we supposed to do about this problem? Because on the one hand we have, you know, Christopher Rufo helping draft legislation that a lot of States have passed, which I have mixed feelings about because, you know, on the one hand, they, they ban certain things that all people would be against, like, you know, separating kids by race and telling kids that one race is inferior to another but then they ban documents from even, you know, entering the classroom as material, uh, certain like the 1619 project, you know, like, does it even ban the poems too, you know? And, and, um, it, it is as, as Camille persuasively argued and, and David French, it's inevitably going to be interpreted in the widest possible sense by people it already has in the case of a, a Tennessee woman bringing a lawsuit, I think, I think it was Tennessee against the board of education for teaching books, which many of which were not particularly radical. Some of which, you know, some of what she objected to was just teaching the straightforward facts, historical facts of Jim Crow. And um, that kind of thing is really worrisome because it it's just there's it seems like there's no way to ban what we want to ban without also banning a lot of stuff that no one should want to ban in practice. No, we're, we're keeping track of the different cases, and uh, it it's different in K twelve than it is in higher ed. Most of higher most of fires work is in higher ed, uh, but in K twelve legislatures do get to um, determine what will be taught in the public schools. It is considered to be government speech. That being said, bans are by no means ideal, and it's unfortunate that it's reached this point. And when they're written in ways that are overly broad, they can sweep in a lot of 
content that would that common sense would tell us is unobjectionable. Uh, and so this is why, you know, when things swing too far one way, the backlash can swing too far the other way. Uh, so, you know, what to, well, not all of these, a lot of these have just been proposed. Not all of them have been passed. I would argue, though, that teachers, by demonstrating that they ethically align with the published learning standards for each grade and subject that they teach, I mean, part of the problem is that teachers have veered too far from what they are hired to do. It's not, you know, as I was writing the book, I I kept thinking to myself, uh, this isn't a free for all people because teachers seem to, I'm hearing a lot of teachers saying, you know, in my classroom, my classroom, well, it's. If it were your classroom, you would have built it. You would be paying the heat, the light. You would be paying the janitor and you would have recruited these students. It's, that classroom really does belong to the public. Uh, the public is paying for it. You are hired. You are licensed by the state. There's a reason you're licensed. You are licensed the same way that a dentist is licensed because you're in a position where you can do real harm. So I think that um, some of this is a necessary corrective, but I disapprove if it goes too far. And ultimately, these decisions should be made in the school boards, not at the legislatures. Uh, But unfortunately, now we've had this letter from the Department of Justice. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this yet, where he's saying that parents have been showing up at school boards. They're extremely incensed. Uh, In some cases, they are um, showing up in huge numbers and they're very angry. And so now there is a letter from the DOJ that I think really depicts the kind of chilling effect that kids are experiencing in the classroom, because it implies that the parents will be watched now by the federal government. Uh, That seems to be the, you know, if not directly stated, that is the implication that they will be coordinating with local law enforcement to make sure that there are no threats against public officials, but they don't really give any good examples of actual, you know, true threats that were launched at public officials. So we've got problems at all levels in the schools, in the legislatures, in the school board, and now coming from law enforcement as well. Not pretty right now. Hopefully it will be prettier next school year. Maybe you're like me and you love to dig in and do your research. You're not afraid of homework. You've definitely fallen down some pretty deep Reddit rabbit holes. But if your search for the right people for your company is coming up dry, there's a resource you haven't tapped into yet. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible, because you can do it all, attract, interview, and hire, all at Indeed. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Indeed makes it easier for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. Pick what skills are important to you and get a clear view of your top talent's abilities faster. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. Talent doesn't need to prove themselves again, and you can dive deeper into talking about what's important to you. With Indeed assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12%, according to Indeed data worldwide. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com conversations. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com conversations. Once again, Indeed.com conversations offers valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. So, um, yeah, there, another point you made in the book I thought was interesting and, and useful is this notion of power relations, which is central to critical race theory and intersectionality is not a, um, I mean, it's, it's power relations are a very real thing. You know, a boss has power over, uh, often has power over his or her employees. Parents have power over their children. There are all kinds of, and in, in more subtle ways, just people can have sort of a softer kind of power over others in, in all kinds of ways. And those are things to be sensitive to. And in the case of a classroom, there's an enormous power dynamic going on, which is that the, this, and, and, you know, I remember this from, from high school more than, more than college, but definitely high school and, and before it's just 
you're always, whether or not you even know it, most kids are scanning the teacher's face for approval and disapproval. And that's separate. And in addition to the explicit threat of not, you know, of, of getting a bad grade. And in certain cases, you, you, you highlight these cases in the book where the grade explicitly depends on pretty much having a, a political, particular political opinion. So you had one example where kids in a French classroom, it was just widely understood and joked about in the classroom that you will, the teacher gives better grades on essays that agree with her particular perspectives uh, and answers to ostensibly sort of open-ended questions. And this happened as well in, in that same class I was at at Columbia. The, on the final exam, the huge essay on the final exam, it was a question about, you know, one time that the cis hetero patriarchy has victimized you. And this is, you know, this is something like half the exam is this essay question. But that, that's right. And my joke on that is that starts with all sorts of embedded assumptions and sunk premises that you yes. just have to accept them to even address that question, right? You do. And and it's, it was also coming on the back of three months of her browbeating us about, you know, her, her takes, you know, all, all people of color are victims of oppression. There was no, this was actually, and and this gets to another point. It was one of the more boring classrooms. And, and I don't mean that from my perspective. I mean that from, from how many kids were raising their hand. It would be, you know, a lecture and one kid raises his or her hand the whole time. Why would you dare? Yeah, because it, even if they agree, right. certainly if they're white, there's just always the opportunity for them, their agreement to not be quite right. And it's just much safer to shut up and listen. Whereas all the other, I, I even read this, some of the same books I was reading in that class and other classes with professors that were totally open-minded and everyone wants to talk and it's not boring. Well, I, I take comfort in the fact that a lot of these teachers are not having the effect that they intend and that the students give the appearance of agreement, but inwardly they are defiant. And I think that that's actually um, extremely healthy. And I think that this kind of oppressive behavior, she's, she is teaching by example how power and oppression works, right? And you learned it. You went to, it's like, I, no, I'm not oppressed because I'm a person of color is what you said, but maybe I'm oppressed in this classroom by you because you have this authority over me and that lesson I'm taking home with me. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the lesson we learn is not often what they intend to teach. Uh, the founder, one of the co-founders of FIRE, Alan Charles Coors, likes to tell this example of a professor who said at the end of a course, I think this was at Princeton, that he was disappointed because in your exam, in, in exa- maybe it was midterms, you all wrote what you wanted, you thought you wanted me to hear, but I want you to think for yourselves. So I'm going to give you a, a book that is the opposite of everything I believe in so that I know that you have at least been exposed to the entire spectrum of thought on this subject. And uh, the book was, I believe, The Road to Serfdom by, I think, Friedrich Hayek, um, which I've never completely read. I've read part of it. And he just always gives this example as the type of professor everyone should have. Whereas the type, it's also the lowest level of teaching where she's basically saying, just agree with me, just agree with me. And that's just rote memorization. It's like, how hard is it to know that the answer to everything is I'm oppressed. Right. Everything I'm oppressed. Right. So it's so simple. It, it's, just, it's so simple. It's boring. Yeah. Well, in that case, the game, the game becomes whether you can master the language, the dialect of English that I, I don't know what this dialect is called. As you say, it's social justice. It's woke. It's the academic face of woke. It's um, just learning to master all of these esoteric concepts that do in the end amount to the pretty simple formula of white is bad, color is good, male is bad, female is good, you know, and add the number of points in your identity. That that's that is the basic size of it combined with the rejection of objective truth of any anything that can be associated with whiteness or Eurocentric that's actually another part of this to highlight is, 
and this is something, this is a part where critical race theory as it appears in the scholarly literature is identical to how it appears in, in elite culture, which is the rejection of things like perfectionism and standardized tests and, you know, the uh, emphasis on reading and writing skill, all of these things that we would associate with the core purpose of education there's a, a stance from which to view all of that as white values. These are, these are values that are not universal. These are values that rose, came about in a culture of white supremacy and reflect their origins in that sense. And therefore we should reject them. We should reject standardized tests in favor of more fuzzy and subjective styles of grading. We should reject perfectionism and emphasis on grammar and writing and, and and all this kind of thing and precision. Right. And, um, that, that is, I mean, it's, it's just another way of saying what racists used to actually say, you know, out loud, which is that this whole, this whole reasoning thing, that's, that's, it's really, it's not for people of color, right? This is what, that's what they used to say. And it's a, or, or for women. All right. Right. Yeah. A, a colleague at fire joked that, you know, if punctuality is a white supremacist trait, then he knows a lot of Hispanic white supremacists <laughs> and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. I can't think of anything more um, disrespectful, disempowering than, you know, telling kids that this whole logic thing isn't for you. It's just, yeah. yeah. And, and if you're struggling at it, then don't, don't keep, don't keep trying because right. you're struggling at it because it's, it's it not was never, it was never meant for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, this definitely, you know, the way you just described it, couldn't think of a better way to keep people from succeeding in life. Can you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's incredibly depressing. And I, I remember too, when I was in graduate school, it was, it was critical feminist theory and it was sort of just, you were supposed to just reject things because males did them you know, certain works like that. Well, that was written by a, a male and it's like, yeah, we know. I mean, it's so odd. That's, that's the only criteria for judging everything, mm-hmm. whether you're male or female. Um, you don't hear about that much anymore. That's gone out of fashion. So hopefully this won't, uh, you know, this won't be in fashion. I, I don't think, you know, these, these fads come and go in education, but the perennial standards of what constitutes good pedagogy remain. And that's why we have ethical guidelines. And it's so, it's really very, very simple if you just adhere to those. And it tells us, even the NEA's own guidelines, the National Council for the Social Studies, that, you know, a responsible educator will expose students to competing points of view. They won't restrict their access to uh, different types of information. And if teachers were properly trained. And if oversight by supervisors were being implemented, we would never have reached this point. The worst uh, manifestations of it would have been uh, cut off immediately because this is, you know, this is just bad teaching. It seems like one of the main sources of the problem are education schools, you know, where, where teachers go to, to become certified to teach you know, I, I know I, I, I've, I've encountered a little bit of the, the, the teacher's college at Columbia and it was, it was known as pretty much the, the most woke epicenter of an already highly woke subculture. It is. And I did pull some of the course descriptions and they're in the book and you could, you know, anyone could Google them up themselves. Just go to Columbia teacher's college and look at the courses and ask yourself if any of these look like the type of instruction that is going to prepare a teacher to help kids learn to read, write, do arithmetic, or engage in critical thinking. They're all hyper-politicized with one particular bent, and it's just um, beating the same drum over and over and over to the point that it just seems monomaniacal, you know? And I did, unfortunately, get a doctorate in higher education specifically because I wanted to become an ed reformer. Uh, I did not get my teaching credentials initially by going through an ed school. I did alternate route, which is probably what saved me from having my head filled. Although I've always been rather 
I, I've never been convincible on most of these issues for whatever reason. I think I just had a really good K-12 education and I had something really quali- high quality to compare it to. And I just went to public school, but it was, it was just well done. My teachers, I have no complaints other than some of them were boring of my K-12 teachers, but I certainly do of the teachers I met in um, undergrad and graduate school. And in ed school, I, I went to Penn State at the time. It was considered the number one program in higher ed. And uh, I, I had to take a mental health break in the middle of it. It was it was so bad. And then I finally was like, am I going to walk away as so many people, you know, who aren't extremely on one side or am I going to finish it? And I did decide to finish it, but I was never hired as an administrator because of the biases, I believe, that exist. Yeah, this was part of the big deterrent for me to get a master's degree or PhD is just not wanting to spend more years of my life in, in a, in a subculture where that felt so deeply strange and, you know, North Korea, like, just like, do I actually want to, how much of my life do I want to spend? It's it's almost as if I'm like living in a, a bad neighborhood. It's like, if I, if I can get out of here, I would like to, and I don't need a master's or a PhD because, because I, you know, I have the, this podcast and I'm in a unique situation. So why subject myself to that? And I guess the counter argument to that would be without more people like you, it just continues to get worse. Right. The, the credentialization is part of the problem, which is why the alternate route is one good way to sort of break this monopoly. I, I do think you know, there were congressional hearings yesterday and they were talking about breaking the hold that the teachers unions, that the educational bureaucracy in general and the ed schools have. I mean, schools are supposed to be about children. And I just don't feel like they have been. I think that they were when I was in school. I I, I never felt otherwise. Uh, I did not feel that way all the time that my children were in school and uh, minor. My kids are in their 20s now, but I look at kids today. One, again, one of my colleagues at, at FIRE said that he used to think it was weird when people homeschooled, but he's beginning to think it's weird when people send their fam- their children to public school. Mm-hmm. And private schools, in many cases, you, you cannot buy your way out of this. In many cases, they are even worse right now. So what's your, I mean, a, a lot of people listening to this are going to be parents in, who precisely understand from personal experience the concerns that this, that your book is about. And so what can you recommend to them by way of resources or actions or wisdom or advice as they encounter these problems with their kids? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I would say that when you read the book, you'll see all of the substantive research that I share that you could share with the teachers and the administrators at your school. I have loads of documentation on why this isn't healthy, why this isn't developmentally appropriate for kids. You know, I go into the psychology, the pedagogy, the emotional effects, the developmental, the ethical reasons why teachers aren't supposed to be doing this, the legal reasons and democratic reasons. So that would be, I think, step one. I think that you need to know the learning standards for your child's grade and know what the disciplinary procedures are in your state for teachers. And if your teacher's are not adhering to the ethical guidelines for your state, for the subject that they're teaching, you should report them, report to take it up the line. Uh, I think that parents can form groups where you attend school. I know that not every parent can commit to going to every school board meeting, but you can form a group where, you know, there's 12 of you and one of you goes to each meeting. So that would maybe cover the whole school year. And then you share and compare notes Uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of what to do when it is, unbalanced and you're not getting through to them. I mean, pulling them out is an option. Not everyone can do that. Uh, I think you should supplement. I think that uh, FIRE has some great curriculum materials we've put together about your rights, about First Amendment rights and other constitutional rights. They're freely downloadable. You can share them with the teachers at your school, but if they are not amenable, you can teach it to your kids yourself. And uh, you also can use what homeschoolers use. We've been going to a lot of homeschooling conferences with FIRE. We attend a lot of conferences to promote our work and to make teachers more aware. Um, Incidentally, not all teachers are your enemy. You know, a lot of teachers agree that there is overreach going on here. And so look for the good teachers and help them, support them. And uh, I would use 
what homeschoolers use. There is some amazingly good content when I go to these homeschooling conferences. And we, we've been going to the great homeschooling conventions. Uh, I, I assume that there are others, but those are in many uh, regions of the country. And there's some wonderful curriculum materials that you can purchase to supplement. Uh, but unfortunately, parents now have to become at least conversant in this ideology so that you can spot it and that you can correct for it and fill in the gaps because there are huge gaps of understanding and uh, reasoning that are not being covered in schools right now. It's a terrible problem. All right. So on that note, I just want to, before we conclude, point everyone to your book. The book is called Undoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. So thank you so much for coming on my show. And I hope everyone concerned about this picks up the book because it's, it's really a good read and it's, it's worthwhile. Thank you, Coleman. Yeah. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.